The reading for today, Romans 12, 1 through 18. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Wrong passage. It's not 12, it's 16. 16? Yeah. Okay. And then, so whatever you practice is gone. That's okay. What, what do you got for me? Romans 16? Uh, one through eight, yeah, 16, 1 through 18. All right. That is my fault, not hers. <laughs> but we're in Romans, so we're all good, right? All right. Romans 16 at the end. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church in Chinchuria. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people and to give her any help she may need from you, for she has been the benefactor of many people, including me. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ Jesus. They risked their lives for me. Not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. Greet also the church that meets at their house. Greet my dear friend, Apentus, who was the first convert to Christ in the province of Asia. Greet Mary, who worked very hard for you. Greet Andronachus and Junia, there's no names I need to pronounce right, right? My fellow Jews who have been in prison with me. They are outstanding among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. Greet Empletius, my dear friend in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our co-worker in Christ, and my dear friend Statius. Greet Apellus, whose fidelity to Christ has stood the test. Greet those who belong to the household of Aristobulus. Greet Heredian, my fellow Jew. I'm doing good, right? Greet those in the household of Narcissus, I know that one, who are in the Lord. Greet Tryphenia and Tryphosa, whose women work hard in the Lord. Greet my dear friend Persis, another woman who <laughs> has worked very hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother, who has been a mother to me too. Here we go. Greet Isyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobus, Hermes, and the other brothers and sisters with them. Greet Philiogus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the Lord's people who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss, all the churches of Christ, and greetings. I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teachings you have learned. Keep away from them, for such people are not serving our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. Well done. All right, check, check. Can everybody hear me? We good? All right. I don't even have to pronounce those names today. I'm so glad. That was like the best pump fake ever. You're going to read this. No, you're not going to. You're going to read this, and it's going to be hard. Great job. Um, hey, welcome to Romans. Uh, I have, like, overstudied for this book for years and years and years. So, like, I literally, Monday, I was going to bed, and Sarah's like, Sarah's like, I was like all hyped up a little bit. She's like, uh, what's going on tomorrow? I was like, I can't sleep. I get to write Romans tomorrow. I can't sleep. She's like, you can't sleep. I'm like, no, I can't even sleep. I'm, I'm going to be up all night waiting to get to my computer to write Romans. Um, so there is there's so much. So I'm doing a few things here. I'm, I'm going to teach through it. I'm going to give you a, a baseline for how to read the book. Today's not going to be real meaty. It's going to be a lot of like information that's going to tell you who these people are. And um, 
who he's talking to, all these names we, we just read. Um, and so I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm working on a, I already sent it to the house, to the house church uh, leaders and house church hosts. You're going to be receiving um, part one of like a, a reading guide for the book of Romans that I'm writing. Um, this one's four pages. I think uh, I'm working on part two. I don't know how many parts it's going to be. There's lots and lots of information that can go with the book. So I'm just going to keep writing it all. And if Turns into some huge thing, and then you got a huge thing, um, and and that's what we're gonna uh, we're gonna we're gonna be here for probably a year or so, um, probably five years. Who knows? Um, but I'm gonna pray, and and then we'll, I want to first off talk to you about why we're gonna do this backwards, why we're starting at the very end of the book and moving backwards. Okay, so let's uh, let's pray and let's jump, jump into this. Father, thank you for uh, everything you have been doing in our midst. Thank you for bringing us to this place. Um, I pray that this would be um, a very important time for us. I pray that we would see things we've not seen before. I pray that we would um, understand you and your church and, and, and the body of Christ in a way that we've not understood it before. I pray that this would awaken something in us. Um, and I pray that you would begin to do your work right now and that we would submit to you as things in our life come into view. I pray that we would come here and submit to you. And that this would bleed out into the, uh, into the house churches as we submit to each other in that space. And that it would begin to change how we interact with each other. Thank you, Father. We pray all of this in your name. Amen. Uh, two things. I want to thank those of you who signed up to serve in the children's ministry over the last few weeks. I really appreciate it. We had like, we had like almost 10 people sign up to help. And that's a lot. And we always need... We always need a little more. So um, we're, we, we, should be, we should create that culture that like we expect each other to be in, you know what I mean, to help out. Um, and also, we had several people sign up last week for, to like, to, 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 for recurring giving, and that, that's a huge deal. Thank you very much. And uh, we, don't, we don't pass the plate. We don't beg for money or anything like that. We just kind of let you know when the things that we're doing are getting difficult because the number is getting low. And that's where we are right now. So I'm just letting you know, um, and I'm not worried. I'm not worried. Um, so here we go. Let's do this. Why? I'm going to give you a scene. You'll explain. I'll, I'll, you'll understand in a minute. Um, why are we starting at the end of the book? Well, when you, when you read the end of a book, you tend to get like a final picture of, of where things are heading and where they're going. And what you see in chapter 16 amongst all these names, if you actually do some scholastic and academic study on it, what you begin to see um, is something very different from what you would expect to see when you actually start reading it in this way. But if you read it forwards, really... Um, for the last 500 years or so, the book of Romans has been read in a particularly like sort of Lutheran way. I'm not, I don't mean like denominational Lutheran. I mean like the, the way that Luther, Martin Luther read it. Um, and the way that the reformers read it. And the, the way that the, if you read the book from the beginning to end and you have the mindset of, a, of, of reformed theology, it starts off in chapter one telling you, it starts off with a baseline of like, here's how terrible you are. You're a terrible, horrible sinner. And here's how much God's wrath is stored up and he's ready to just throw it at you. Like he's like, like a giant wrathful snowball. He's ready to hit you with it. And it's been storing it up and every time you, thing you do, it gets bigger and bigger. And in chapter two, you see God's judgment coming. Um, and in chapter two, verse five, it says, but because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the, for the day of God's wrath. So there's like, be very scared, be terrified. And, and as you move through forwards, um, it starts off pretty angry, and we understand Paul, he seems to be a zealot here uh, with an axe to grind, and so he's got some sort of, it, 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 it almost reads like a bunch of puritanical writings. Um, and, and then we get going, and I just snorted. And then um, as you move through chapter 3, 4, and 5, you begin to think that actually God has gotten very angry at the Jewish people, and he's abandoned them, and he's replaced them 
with these Gentiles, and we call that supersessionism. That's actually rather racist theology that we need to be very careful of, uh, that we're not here to, re- to replace anybody, um, that God is actually doing something very different than we thought he was doing. And so, like, when you read it forward, this is kind of, this is how it sort of builds. And then by the time you get to chapter 8, um, you sort of see this call to faith um, and, and, and grace over works, and you see all that, and it sort of ends there. But then for some reason, he goes on for eight more chapters, just being confusing, all right? And, and people get exhausted reading the book, and they abandon it usually around chapter eight or so. Uh, maybe you've done that yourself. You read, I'm like, I got it, I got it. Next book, next book. Um, and it's just an arduous journey, and it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense, and things go round and round, and, and it's hard to understand. So if you start, though, at the end of the book, and, and you build context first, uh, the book becomes very, very different. It, be, it becomes a whole different story. You, you start to understand... Um, it suddenly sets us free from trying to read the book of Romans as a theological statement. Um, and so I, I, I want to start off talking about like what Romans is. Romans is a book about lived theology. When I say lived theology, there's, I get, there's, there's sort of systematic and like belief and doctrine. There's all these things that you hold in your brain. Um, those are theology, the ways you think about God. The book of Romans is not being written to give you more theology. It is being written to show you how that theology should play out in your everyday life. Um, And so the book of Romans is about lived theology. It's not a doctrinal treatise. Paul is not, um, he's not writing a book about how to get saved. Uh, I think, I'm not, I'm not, I'm I'm trying my best to be like gracious and generous. And so don't read this as like I'm on the other team of anybody. But like, um, I don't believe the Romans road is a particularly healthy way to read the book of Romans. When you lead people through the Romans road, I get it. I understand what you're doing. Um, it's a misreading of what Paul was doing, though, and I think we should be as honest as possible. If we're going to talk about salvation, let's, let's read the Gospels. We're going to look at Jesus. Um, when we read the books of Paul, though, what we are reading is Paul's theology, his understanding of Jesus and everything that he believes about Jesus being worked out in action. And so he's following the Spirit. You read in Acts 13, they're discerning together, and they're saying, it seems good to the Spirit and to us of what I know about Jesus and, and, and listening to the Spirit, this is what God wants us to do. And so, in, like I said before, in some cities, he does some things one way. In other cities, he does it another way. In the, in, in the city of Rome, all, obviously, there are, there are like female elders and leaders in the church. And in the city of Ephesus, there is not. And there is specific reasons why. Paul is not making specific beliefs for, for all of time, for all of the church to follow. Jesus does that. The Gospels do that. But Paul is living in relationship with what he understands about Jesus and attempting to live it out every single day. And so when you read the book of Romans, he's not writing this doctrinal treatise. This is lived theology. Lived theology is about embodying what you already believe about God, about humanity, about the cosmos. Um, He's not writing a letter about how to get saved. He's writing to a church. They're, They're a church. They're already Christians. They already know what, the sal- what salvation has been, has been showered down upon them, what they have received. They already know it. Um, they're already Christians. They're already recipients of that salvation. Paul is writing to them because they have major problems in their community, and, and Paul believes that the solution to the problems that they have in the community are to be found in Jesus. And so he's going to sell the, retell the story and direct them towards Jesus together. Um, and it fits perfectly with the way that God has always worked uh, through time. So I'm going to start by sort of breaking down the entire book into two parts. And as we go, I'm going to break it down into more and more parts. Uh, not this morning, but as we move through the book. Um, so Romans 12, I'll start with this. Romans 12 through 16 is what we called lived theology. 
Um, it is, here's what you should do. It's not about belief. It's about doing what, what your beliefs have caused you, to, how they've caused you to act. So 12 through 16 is about, here's what it looks like to be Christ-like. Here's what it looks like um, to live in community and to live sacrificially uh, in, in a cross-shaped manner in community. Chapters 1 through 11 are written to prop up Paul's lived theology. So, you start over here, chapter 1, as you move through, Paul's making all these arguments. He's making all these interesting arguments. There's full of questions and all kinds of stuff. And then you get to chapters 12 through 16, and it is, and because of all that, here's what I'm asking you to do. So he has specific arguments he wants this church to wrestle with and to understand so that we can get to the point where Paul can lay out 12 through 16 and show them how they should be living. Um, but all of this starts with context. So in order to find the context, we are separated 2,000 years and 10,000 miles away from where this book was written. And so we need to get some context. And so this is what we're going to do. We're going to start off by looking at Paul's audience, um, who they were. So uh, what size was Paul's audience? Probably about five or six house churches are in Rome at the time that Paul is writing. Um, and uh, we're going to talk about where they were meeting in a, in a few minutes, like location-wise. Um, so probably five or six house churches. There are several New Testament scholars that disagree on how many people. N.T. Wright believes that it's between 30 and 100 people. So like there are more Christians in this room than N.T. Wright would argue were in the city of Rome when this book was written to them. Uh, um, Oaks, another guy, Dr. Oaks, who wrote a book called Reading Romans in Pompeii. It's like how to study Pompeii in a way to understand how the church existed and lived in the world. Um, he argues and lays out a very good argument that it could be upwards of, of 200 people. Nobody goes bigger than that. So we are probably right now bigger than the church of, of that, that received this letter. Um, and so we can picture ourselves being the recipients of it and gathering in a space uh, to, to read it together. So th- this church is roughly the same size as 90% of churches in America. 90% of churches in America are less than 100 people. So they're in, they're in the vicinity. Um, so where did they live? Let's, let's go to Rome. This is actually modern Rome, but you can see the remnants of, of what there was. Uh, you, you have... Um, if you've ever been to Rome, you can think of the whole city in terms of like this river. It sort of wraps up and it comes down around like this and it goes like that. Uh, and if you, if you know where you are next to the river, sort of you can tell where you are in the city. And so there, uh, the Christians lived just west of the Tiber River. This is the Tiber River right here in that little um, island. Um, this is called the Trastevere. This is where it's at the bottom of, of this huge hill. Um, which if you go up sort of that way that, where that green space is and just sort of diagonal off of that, you're going to see where the Vatican is, uh, where, where it's likely some other Christians live there as well. But the Christians Paul is writing to, most of them lived right here, the poor ones. And then you have a couple more. Um, you have them in the Palatine and the Aventine. Uh, regions. The Palatine ones would probably have been a little more wealthy. Um, you can see the green area here that's got a lot of park area. That all used to look just like this, but Nero burnt it to the ground and blamed it on the Christians to kick off the first great persecution because Nero wanted to build his hippodrome. He wanted to build a Colosseum. He wanted to build all kinds of stuff. Um, and so there's a lot of history right there that you can work through, but this is basically where they live. The Trastevere, the Palatine, and the Aventine Hills, this is where the Christians live. Again, the Trastevere is at the bottom of the hill, uh, and it was a disgusting place to live. We'll talk more about that in the coming weeks. It's, uh, it's a place where 
you know, there was fountains all over Rome, but the point of these fountains, they weren't decorative. They were meant to wash the streets. And so they would, they would rush water and, and you would just throw your garbage in your feces and whatever right into the, into the street and it would wash down the street. Um, and it would all end up right about here where the Christians lived. And it was smelled bad and it was disgusting. It was, it was rat infested. It was not a great place to live. Um, and so let's look at who they were. You have a lot of very difficult to pronounce names at the end and did a great job there, I think. Um, and so... Those names are, are the greetings to people in the church. Now, we have a mixture of people, because at the very end, there's more names we're going to get to next week. Not as many, not as hard to read. Um, but uh, those, are the, those are the Christians in Corinth, and these are the, these are the, are, are the Christians in, in Rome. And so you have them sort of all mixed together on a list here, because I wanted to separate them by nationality so that you can understand why Paul is writing the book. Every time a book of the Bible was written, there was, a, 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 there was a, an author who understood a reason to write the book, and there was a people who the book was written to. It was not written to you and me. It was not. It was written to them for a specific reason in a specific time. Uh, And so, uh, the names mentioned in Romans 16, there are 10 Jewish men, there are two Jewish women. There are 16 Gentile men, and there are six Gentile women. You can tell by their names who they were. Like, uh, you have Phoebe down here. No Jew is ever going to name their kid Phoebe because this is the name, uh, it's giving honor to a, a Greek god, um, a goddess. So like you, you would just wouldn't do that. So we know Phoebe is a convert from pagan and Gentile religions uh, in the church. Every one of these people either converts from Judaism or converts from um, pagan religions of Rome at the time. And, and they're all here together. They're all in the church together. You have, uh, you have a mixture here of people that are both uh, that, are, that are in the Roman church, and then you have some of these people that are together in the church in Corinth where this letter is being written. Um, so, let's talk about writing and delivery. The, the, the letter was likely written in the year 57 to, to 58. So, like, there's a, like a, maybe a 15-month span there, window there, where, where this letter was likely written. It was written from the city of Corinth. Um, hold on a second. Why do I have this here? Um, okay, I'm going to skip that one. Uh, it, it, was likely, it was likely written between 57 and 58 CE in the city of Corinth. And at the end of chapter 16, we see the names of the, of the Jewish. These are, the, these are the, uh, the, the Jews and Gentiles writing the letter together. Uh, and sending it to the city of Rome for them to read. Uh, it talks about Timothy. We know some of these people. Uh, some of them are very, very famous. Um, and we're going to be talking more about them as we go. We already talked about Erastus, a very wealthy man in the city of Corinth. Uh, we talked about him a few weeks ago and how there's still a plaque on the ground that bears his name that he had carved in that city because he was such a powerful man in that city. He was also a convert uh, to Christianity, and he was in the church. And so... Um, it tells us basically this letter came from the home of a man named Gaius. It says right here in verse, chapter, uh, verse 23, Gaius, whose hospitality I and the whole church here enjoy, send you his greetings. So Paul is living with a man named Gaius. He's living in his house. Um, an ancient Roman villa that they lived in would have looked like this. This would have been their gathering area. There would have been rooms off of every corner. Uh, and so they would have gathered here weekly to sort of gather in a circle as a church, they would have shared a meal. They would have shared communion together. Uh, they probably would have sung a few songs, and they would have um, talked about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And everybody would have, would have exercised their spiritual gifts together in that place. Um, and so all of this is sort of going to come into play as we move through as well. Uh, the church in Corinth has, as we know from our study in the book of Acts, the church in Corinth has had a very hard time as a church. They have 
uh, had all kinds of divisions. You have, again, people like the wealthy Erastus, wealthy men like Gaius, uh, and you have these, these poor Christians as well who were living there together uh, in the city of Corinth. And what began to happen was the separations in society and in culture began to trickle into the church, Babylon infiltrating the church. And the church began to look more and more like the culture. In other words, they would do things like they would have spots, special places for people of honor to sit. We have... Um, they would have special sort of gatherings for the more wealthy people who thought it dishonorable to eat with the poor, with slaves, with, uh, with women, with children. And they wouldn't share their tables. And so some of the wealthy people were showing up early and drinking the good wine that they brought and eating the nice bread. And then they were sort of wrapping it up before the poor people came into the church. Uh, and then they could eat sort of whatever was left, the cheap wine and the cheap bread that was left over or whatever they could bring. And, and there was this, began to be this unevenness in the church. And Paul gets very, very mad about this. They also begin to fight over spiritual gifts, over who's the most important. And so what you see is everything that Rome was all about creeping into the church in the city of Corinth uh, and they had to work through it. And so Paul writes them letters. He writes them, um, he writes them several letters uh, talking about this. But I wanted to point out something in just a second as well. If you, uh, if you look at verse, uh, verse 22, in this list of people that are in the city of Corinth writing the letter, it says this. It says, I, Tertius, who wrote down this letter, greet you in the Lord. And this is the part where people kind of freak out. They're like, wait a minute, Paul didn't write this? Paul didn't write this letter? Okay, so Tertius is a scribe. Um, 99% of people in that day were completely illiterate. Uh, and basically, you were considered illiterate if you couldn't write. If you could read but not write, you still were considered illiterate. Um, and the only people that knew how to really write is the scribes. And it was a high-paid position, but apparently Tertius is a member of the church. Uh, and so, you can picture this. You can picture them gathered in this space, maybe pacing in circles, like talking, wandering. Maybe they're sitting in chairs. Maybe they're lounging. Maybe the, the pool is, is full and they're, and they're resting on a hot day. And you can see, you can sort of picture them and you got Tertius over in the corner with this desk and this big probably piece of parchment or perhaps a codex, maybe if he's writing on that. And he is, he's got his quill and they're, and they're all talking about, okay, what can we say to the church in Rome? They know that the church in Rome is having problems. And we're gonna talk about what those problems were in just a minute. What are we going to do? How are we going to help them? And it turns out that everything that they want to say to the church in Rome, they've already dealt with. They've already worked through it. Everything that was happening in the city of, uh, in the city of Corinth is also happening there in the city of Rome. And so you can picture them sitting around this pool in the courtyard, putting together this letter, crafting arguments, recalling scriptures, saying, hold on, you can't really argue this yet because they won't understand that. First, you have to talk about this and lay, lay the ground rules. Because if you're going to ask them to do this, that's a big ask. You're asking them basically to lower their honor and welcome these other people. And that's really a really hard thing to ask them to do. So you have to have a good reason. So what you're going to do is you're going to go back to chapters 1 through 11 and you're going to make this, you're going to craft this argument for why they should allow others at the table who maybe they don't like or maybe they disagree with or maybe they don't think belong or maybe who, are, who bring down their own honor and bring them a little bit of shame. And so you're gonna have to craft all these arguments in chapters one through 11 and then we're gonna, we're, gonna, we're, we're gonna make the ask and they're gonna get it because we've laid down the argument. And this is what they would have been doing, all of them, gathered around the courtyard, wandering and talking and writing and being like, hold on, write that down, write that down. And Tertius is writing and they're gonna, they're gonna back up and he's gonna read it. What do we got? And he's gonna read it all out loud. And they're gonna be like, okay, hold on. What are we missing? And they're going to come up with more arguments and they're going to add it in there. Uh, then they're going to train a courier to perform the letter 
in the churches in Rome, in all of the house churches, and they're going to choose a woman named Phoebe, and we're going to talk about her next week. And Phoebe would have been the one who would go with, with she would be well-versed in all the arguments and all the theology that Paul has in the book. Uh, and she would have gone house church to house church to house church, preaching this letter and then resting and asking questions. And she would have not just preached it, she would have acted it out. They would have been maybe separate in the room, the Jews and the Gentiles, and they would have been, she would put their fingers in their faces and then turn, look at the other one. And, and basically, she's, she's not trying to perform, she's trying to be Paul. She's the ambassador of Paul. And so she's not trying to be like Paul. She's trying to be Paul. She's putting on her, Paul costume, and, and he's telling her, at this, make this face, and look at this person. I know they're going to be there. They're gonna, their eyes are going to go up when you read this part, okay? So you want to look at them, and then you want to look at the other people. Take a pause, and let it build up, and then you're going to turn, and you're going to say this, and they're going to be like, ooh, and then you're going to be like, no, you shut up, because it's this for you as well. And, and, and this is what Paul is doing, is teaching her how she is going to proclaim this letter, and it gets epic. Um, so, uh, in order to figure out what the problem is that they need to deal with, the, city in Ro- the church in the city of Rome, uh, we have to look at their history and what they've been through already. So um, I want to take a moment to look at the historical and political context of Paul's letter here. So the original converts, the first Christians in the city of Rome were not Gentiles. There were no Greeks. They, 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 they were no Romans in the early church uh, in, 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 in the city of Rome. 100% of the early church in Rome was Jewish. And it was connected to synagogues. Remember, like I talked about a few weeks ago, maybe last week, um, Judaism was a, uh, Christianity was a sect of Judaism when it started. It was just another train of thought that was paired well alongside all the other ones. Um, they had a specific idea about who the Messiah was. They believed Jesus fit all these arguments. And their role was to like, are you for their guy, right? Um, eventually it broke away, but that wasn't for a while. The first generation of Christians were Jewish, and so you have them connected to all these synagogues uh, in the Aventine and the Palatine area. Uh, around 49 CE, there is an emperor named Claudius, and Emperor Claudius exiles all the Jews in Rome. He decides these uprisings, these, these violent protests, it's too much. I, I, it, I'm always putting them down. I'm exhausted from the whole thing. No more Jews in Rome. And they kick all the Jews completely out of Rome. And this begins another diaspora, like a scattering of the people as they spread around and they, and they sort of begin to meld with other cultures and stuff. And they lose everything. The, the, all their houses are commandeered and taken from them, all their belongings, all their possessions. So the Jewish Christians in this church, they've been through a lot. They have a, a lot of pain. They've been kicked out of, of the only place that they've lived for a very long time. They lost their synagogues. They lost everything. And they get exiled from the city. And, and they just travel wandering to different cities, trying to find a place to settle down and be themselves again. Uh, so that happened in 49 CE. However, Nero, shortly after, becomes emperor. And Nero rescinds the Jewish exile in 55 CE. So we're a few years later, um, uh, allowing the Jews to return to Rome. So they begin to return to Rome, but remember, they've lost everything. So any high status they had, any power that they had, you're like, it's like you're wandering now into a city where there is no one like you. Even though they remember you being there six, seven years ago, uh, they've gotten very used to not being around you. So you're walking into this city now. You have nothing. You have no possessions. You have the clothes on your back and whatever you can carry. And you try to go back to find a place to live. And the only place where you can afford to live now because you have no money is in the Aventine area, uh, the poor neighborhood at the bottom of the hill, uh, the smelly, disgusting district. And so you move in there. And so... um, 
When they come back, however, from their diaspora, from their exile, when the Jewish people come back from yet another exile in another place, uh, everything is different. There's still a Christian church there, and it's still in the same place, but it's no longer Jewish Christian. Now it's Gentile Christian. And it is 100% Gentile Christian. So these, these Gentile believers were now in dominance in the Roman churches, and it wasn't just poor Gentiles, it was very wealthy Gentiles were in in the space and, and running the church. And so these Gentiles held convictions that were very, very different from those held by um, the Jewish Christians. So when they gathered together, um, they did not adhere, these Gentile Christians, they never adhered to any sort of Jew- ter- Jewish dietary restrictions. Um, they, they, they celebrated sort of all the pagan festivals sometimes, but they would sort of celebrate them towards Jesus. Whereas the Jewish church, back when it was Jewish, um, they, they adhered to all the Jewish daily, uh, dietary restrictions. They, they ate the strange foods um, that, that they were allowed to eat. They had this kosher diet. But these Gentiles are coming in and they're eating, they're eating meat from sacrifice in the temples. They're eating uh, shrimp and pork and all sorts of foods that were considered unclean and forbidden for the people of God to be consuming. So you, you have these Jews and they're coming back into the church and there's these Gentiles here and they're all filled up the room already and they dress different and they're worshiping different. And it's kind of an offense to you because you're very conservative. When you worship God, you have these Jewish festivals that you do and you have these specific prayers and you do prayers a certain amount of times a day and they're not doing any of this. And so you have these very conservative, very religious Christians and they're coming back to their church and their church has been overrun by Gentiles who worship completely differently, who are very liberal. And what do we do now? And and you look at how they gather. And so what you do is you, you end up with, with two different groups. So when Paul's writing his letter, he has one audience that is broken up into two audiences. And in fact, different sections of the book of Romans are written to two different audiences. And, and one thing that like, I think maybe by the end of this, it might be a good exercise to get a highlighter uh, in your Bible or your Bible app or whatever and to highlight the, the parts that are written to the Jewish people in one color, highlight the parts that are written to the Gentiles in another color, and then there's a few sections that are written to both, and highlight those a third color. And this sort of brings it out and allows you, and we're going to probably do some of those exercises moving forward as we go. But I'm just trying to give you a baseline today. Um, what we have in Paul's audience when he is writing to them, we have two groups of people. We have what he calls the strong. The dunatoi is what he calls it. It's the, it's the Greek word for strong. Um, and the dunatoi are the wealthy Gentile converts of high status, many from prominent households. They worship in more culturally Roman ways. And then you have another audience that is there together that Paul is trying to bring unity uh, to. They are called the weak. In the Greek, the word is the edunatoi, like without power. Uh, and so they're poor Jewish converts of low status, returning from years of exile. They worship in conservative Jewish ways. And now they have to be one church because a central belief of Christianity is that there is one holy and Catholic church. Catholic, not giant C, little C. It means universal. That's what it is. It, it's, there is one universal church. There is only one. And so unlike us, they believed that and they didn't separate and break into two different churches. They stayed together, but it was difficult. It was hard. And so what do you do? And it wasn't going well, apparently. Which makes sense that the Corinthians would want to write to them, right? I mean, they've already been through this. You have these wealthy, their separation, 
There are Jews and Gentiles in the church in Corinth. It seems to be at some level, some of their separation, but really most of their separation is fights over power. Who's the greatest? Who's the best? And you have high status and you have purposely low status people and they're fighting and how do they, be, how, how do they interact in a church together? Now, I can think of, of no more important thing to talk about today in the American evangelical church than the book of Romans if you read it backwards. If you read it forwards, oftentimes what we end up with is more condemnation and more hatred. But if you read it the way the authors intended you to understand the book, what I believe this is what they intended for you to understand, what you're going to see is that your salvation that you have already received is the most powerful thing that you possess in your life to bring about peace and reconciliation, not just in the church and the community, but in your city and in your world. And if you fully understand what Jesus has done for you, and this is the argument that Paul's gonna make from chapters one to chapter 11, if you fully understand what Jesus has done for you, then you will have no condemnation of anyone else around you. You will have embrace, and you will have gathering, and you will have the worship of Christ, and, and you will have a spirit that is humble and looks up to other people, not down on them, not demanding that they change to come to the church. Instead, allowing them to belong before they even fully understand. And let the Spirit do its work. And Paul's gonna lay all of this out. Um, And so Paul's letter to them is written about 10 years after uh, Nero rescinded this exile, and this is the context with which they're writing. Now, I I know that the... um, uh, Hold on a second. I'm getting a little ahead of myself. I got talking. I got way, way off my notes. Um, so there's all these poor people. They're starting over. And on top of that, they found themselves to be foreigners in their own Christian community. Uh, they're, trying to re- they're trying to return to and build community in. They find themselves to be weak. They're a minority of religious view. They're gathering amongst these strong, powerful people who they're a majority in the church. And once you realize that like, you have the minority view in the church, you feel powerless to help and serve and to be a part of anything. And, and so he's got all of these way, things that he wants to say, Paul and the church in Corinth, things that they want to say to them. I mean, um, so the book of Romans, if I, if I can recap real fast, the book of Romans is not a book about salvation from hell or from purgatory or anything like that. The book of Romans is about tr- how true salvation manifests itself in the church community. Romans is about how and why the cross reconciles us together in the midst of it all, of, of, of all of our division, of all of our hatred, and all of our bitterness, and all the ways that we have hurt each other and damaged each other. Uh, what, what part does the cross play in any of this? At what point are we able to, to look at it and say, well, the, the cross is actually the perfect example, of the, the, the perfect uh, uh, healing device that we need in the middle of, of this conflict. Uh, I- instead, of, instead of just cutting them off and moving away from them, it's, it's, it's okay, I'm going to carry my cross and I'm going to walk towards you closer and closer and closer and to build these relationships so that the spirit can, can unify us together. So Romans is about, it's, 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 it's about how and why the cross reconciles us together. And I love the thought that this letter came from the, from the church in Corinth because this church had been through so much already. Remember, when Paul visited in, 50, 50, uh, in the year about 50, uh, uh, CE, um, he noticed all of the same problems in their church. And, and he writes to them several letters. He actually wrote three. We only have two of them. We have First and Second Corinthians. There was another letter, probably between the two, but we're not really sure. There may have one been before the first one as well. We're not really sure. Uh, but we only have these two. Wouldn't it be awesome, though, if one day we find the other one? I just, sometimes I think about stuff like that and I nerd out a little bit um, about what that would do. That would just be incredible. Um, and so Paul is gathering with this people whom he has already written to and worked them through their problem. I mean, remember 1 Corinthians 13. This is a passage that people read at weddings and stuff like that. And that's great. And, and that's fine. But that's, 
It wasn't written with the happiest sentiment. Uh, These people were fighting. This was meant to be read at like a church gathering, maybe like a business meeting that had gone really bad. Like they're fighting, they're fighting over power. Who's the most important in the church? And Paul writes to them and he tells them that love actually does all the things that they have not been doing. The reason he mentions love is patient is because they have not been patient. Love is kind. They have not been kind. Uh, love, is, love does not envy. They were envious of each other. Like everything that Paul mentions here, he mentions because that is what they were doing. So if you read it like that, love is patient. Love is kind. It doesn't envy. It does not boast. It's not proud. And if you've ever read about Roman boasting and Roman pride, it was a real thing. You can read these letters that are like, by the time I was 12, I had slain my first thousand Troops, like the way that they would just make up stuff and brag and write in the ancient world to sort of build themselves up. They were apparently doing this in the church as well. They were showing up and like, I, I healed seven people last night. <laughs> just like, all just whatever, like bragging and boasting about how spiritual they are. Love, it does not dishonor other people. It doesn't lower them. It doesn't, it's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. Apparently it's like, it's not easily angered, Bob. You know, like, <laughs> it keeps no record of wrongs, Janice. Throw it away. Uh, love does not delight in evil, but it rejoices with the truth. So they were, they were laughing when other people fell. They were taking delight in people's uh, sorrow because then they could say, look how much better I am. I see this on a regular basis. I saw this all week when another pastor last week had to confess something that he fell into. And the rest of the week, I watch all my Christians, Christian brothers and sisters sort of fist in the air, cheering, talking about... like. I, it, there's, not this, there's not this pain. Some of them had genuine pain for the victims and all that, but I saw an awful lot of gloating. I saw an awful lot of uh, sort of braggadociousness, posturing. How dare? You think you're better? I mean, yeah. Uh, it, 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 it doesn't delight in evil, but it rejoices with the truth. It always protects, it always trusts, it always hopes, it always preserves True love cares about each other. True love mourns when people suffer. True love mourns when people fall, when people, when people act in ways that are self-destructive to themselves, to their community. True love sees it and cries and mourns. And, and, and he's writing to them saying, like, and this is no, none of this is you. And apparently, they worked through it. They were able to find healing. And Paul was able, able to go and see them and spend time with them and bring about this healing that was so full and so complete that they can look back now and read the letter Paul wrote to them earlier and say, I mean, that began to pull us out of it. What if we wrote a letter to the Romans? I know they're going through some heavy stuff. I know they're having a difficult time. We oftentimes think that Paul just decided out of nowhere, I'm going to write a letter. I'm going to call it Romans. And it's going to tell the whole world how to get saved. That is not at all what we're reading. These are actual communities with actual problems. And the people in the city of Corinth gathered together and write this letter because they want to help save their brothers and sisters. They see them getting torn apart. They see the world creeping in and prying them apart in little pieces. I mean, uh, if you look at 1 Corinthians 13, 12, you can see why why they needed a, a shift in their idea of love and how love worked. And Paul writes all this, and then Paul writes this as well. He says, I know in part, and then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And the reason he writes this, he, talks, he says, look, um, I practice unity, I practice love for my enemies, I practice all this, and, 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 I, 
and I accept you as you are and I love you and I don't condemn you and I don't judge you um, because I only know you in part. I, I only see in part. I can see myself in part. God sees me the whole thing. What I see of myself and what I see of you, it's like this foggy kind of glass I'm, I'm trying to see through and he says, I only know in part but then I shall know fully even as I am fully known. And the, the thing he's emphasizing here is that like, you don't know. You don't know what people are going through. You don't know why they're lashing out this way. You don't know why they're acting this way. There, there is a brokenness in their soul. There is, when, when people have addictions from drugs to pornography, like there is, there's this pain in their soul. You're judging the action that they did and you're condemning the action. And Paul says, I see a part. I see, I see the evidence of your brokenness. And I'm assuming it's incredibly painful. And Paul draws into people, draws closer and closer and closer. Why? Because Paul himself experienced this kind of grace. God was able to see all of him. The Christians saw him as this terrifying murderer who murdered, went around murdering Christian men, women, and children and arresting them and killing them. But God saw the whole of Paul and saw what he had gotten wrong, saw the brokenness in him, and revealed himself and brought healing into his life. And so Paul was able to go, somebody who was picked up from the very, 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 very bottom, like a murderer of men, women, and children. And Paul makes him the voice. Uh, Jesus makes Paul his voice because Jesus knows that Paul, someone who has been forgiven so much, is the perfect one to enter into these situations where people are fighting and tearing each other apart. He's like, you have to see each other. You have to draw close to each other. You have to know each other. You can't judge from the outside. You can't just stand there and and hurl a judgment at somebody because you don't know. You don't know their story. You don't know what they've been through or how they got here. You don't know what kind of information has indoctrinated them or or manipulated them or or the pain that they've been walking with. You don't know. And so Paul draws in. He does this and it works. And it, it brings the Corinthian community together in a way where now they can sit in a space at Gaius's house with Tertius and they can say, you know what they need? they need? They need a letter. Let's do that. Let's craft a letter that we can write that will wake them up to what God has done for them so that they can begin to do that for each other. So that they can begin to find healing. And it's this beautiful, incredible way to start to understand the letter. Um, so we have, um, I mean, th- this is, this is Paul and the church in Corinth. This is what they're going to do. They're going to use the story of God's people and the teachings of Jesus to awaken them, not just to what he saved them from, but what God saved them to. Because your salvation, your salvation is for all of us. It's not just for you. The salvation that you have experienced, the ways that you have been set free and your eyes open to the idea that Jesus really is right now ruling over all of us and over everything, that there is somebody at the wheel in charge and yes, you know, as, as they say, that uh, the curve of history is very long, but it bends towards justice. I think it was Martin Luther King said this. Yes, like it's, it's a slow-moving thing. God is bringing justice. There is somebody at the wheel, and we can trust that all we have to do is be the presence of Christ here. This is what they're sitting around attempting to do, attempting to help them see. And so he's got these questions, like, like maybe you've allowed the empire to use your faith as just another way to divide you. And this is what was happening. All of the ways that the world has divided people by, by money, by race, by everything that we can name, all of the ways from simply even like, what kind of computer do you use? What kind of video game console do you play? We will separate ourselves over everything, anything we'll be get tribal over. 
And the world is doing this. And, and, and Paul is here and he's, he's gathering these people together and he says, hey, some of these separations are creeping into the church and we're going to deal with that. And so imagine also today that what happens like when a church falls into trial, into difficulty, the ways that we judge each other. I want us to be the kind of church that when we see another church, a local church, a faraway church, when we see them struggling, our first mindset is, is there may, may not be, but is there anything that we could say to help? Is there anything that we could do? Is there some way we could reach out and bring healing? Everybody from top to bottom needs healing in a, in a, in a, in a, in a culture that has gone bad. How can we begin, a, a church culture that's gone bad, how can we begin to make it right again? And so there's this whole different way that once the gospel has gotten a hold of you, a different way that you can look at the world around you, you can look at these other churches and you can look at your brothers and sisters in Christ and say, look, huge brokenness here, huge brokenness here, and huge brokenness here. Let's walk together. Let, I'll listen to you. Um, and we'll take communion together. We'll always take I mean, this is one of the reasons we take communion together every single week and we always have. Because we have various views, a lot of which actually come against each other in this room. But if you set the communion table out for a bunch of Christians, they're all going to take it. Because we all understand what it is. We all agree that this is how the body of Christ comes into the world. Through the body of Christ, uh, this is how healing and salvation come. Through the body of Christ being broken and poured out for everyone else. This is the invitation. And so that's what I'm going to leave you with uh, today. I have... um, uh, one more thing. Oh, yeah, one more thing I wanted to point out. Paul is also writing to the church in Philippians regularly, and they apparently have some of the same issues as well. As you read the writings of Paul, you see the same issues. There's this passage in Philippians uh, chapter 2. It says, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness, if any compassion, then make my joy complete and be like minded, having the same love, being one in the Spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Again, he's starting to mention the things that they have that they struggle with. And he says, rather in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but to each of you looking to the interests of the others. And I wanted to draw your attention here to like the very beginning. If, if there's any comfort from his love, comfort, I, I love the word. I've pointed out the word a lot. It's this word, um, it's this word paramythion. Para means to come up alongside somebody. Mythion, a myth is a story with a meaning. So it's like coming up along somebody and telling them your story or any story that will help them grasp um, their way forward, help them be encouraged, help them in their situation say, look, we were here. This is what the church in Corinth is doing. This is what Paul's doing in every letter, but this is what the church of Corinth is doing to the church in Rome. We've been there and God has brought us through. There is hope. And so I think what you're going to find when we study this book is, is hope for the world, uh, hope for the church, hope for reformation. Um, and I, I, I really do believe this is going to be a really important time of growth for us. I really do. So um, get involved in a house church and, and talk about it with people. Uh, check out the website if you need to find one there. I'm going to wrap up now uh, with a word of prayer and then we'll say the Lord's Prayer together, shall we? Father, thank you for this place and these people. Uh, lay the path out before us. Make it straight. Let us follow it. Let us be humble. Let us not rejoice in the failures of others. Let us mourn with them and walk with them. Let us continue uh, to join people in the depth of despair uh, with no fear for how we're perceived, no fear for our honor, no fear for being shamed. Let us join them because you are there and let us walk with them towards healing and goodness. Thank you, Father. In your name, amen. Would you stand with me and end up with uh, the Lord's Prayer today?
Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Grace and peace. Love you all. Have the greatest Monday of your life. Sunday. Monday, whatever.